the bottom line is, you know, a lot of people look at running and they want to try it, um, but they're intimidated by it. And I think the more encouraging and um, welcoming we are, um, starting from the top of the sport, uh, the better it is. And so that's exciting for for me to watch and to cover, and um, I hope they continue. That's Aaron Strout, and this is episode 54 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. What is up, everyone? I'm Mario Fraioli, and I'd like to welcome you to my podcast, where I bring you conversations with some of the top athletes, coaches, personalities, and behind-the-scenes people in the sport of running. This week, I sat down with Aaron Strout. Aaron, as of just a few weeks ago, is the digital editor at womensrunning.com, which was a very good get for that publication. And for my money, Aaron is one of the top journalists covering the sport of running today, and she is someone whose work and wit I have long admired. Before taking her current role at Women's Running, Erin wrote for Outside, Runner's World, Running Times, and numerous other publications. We caught up earlier this month at the Napa Valley Marathon, where we hosted a pre-race athlete panel together. Erin and I sat down to talk about the evolution of her career, how she got into running, how she got into journalism, and eventually running journalism. We discussed the current state of the sport, both the good and the bad the rise we've seen amongst American women in recent years, and what can be done to bridge the gap between elite athletes and middle and back of the Packers. We also got into the issue of gender equity and coaching, how she deals with feedback and criticism of her work, why she wishes freelance writers would stop pitching her personal essays, and a whole lot more, including some fun anecdotes about Meb Kaflesky and Shalane Flanagan. We'll leave it at that for now. I had a great conversation with Aaron. I think you'll really enjoy dropping in on it. So without further ado, let's dive right in with Aaron Strout. Yeah, we'll get rolling. Aaron Strout, welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Thanks for having me. So you recently took a new gig as the digital editor of Women's Running. So first off, congratulations. And Thank how you. did that come to be? Well, um, yeah, I was looking for a new challenge. I uh, officially started yesterday. (laughs) Um, So it's been an interesting start since I've been traveling. Um, Yeah, I was looking for a new challenge. Um, I have been writing a lot over the past few years specifically about women and running. And so why not? They were looking for somebody to help out, um, at least for the next two months. So that's what I signed up for, um, just to kind of get the website you know, chugging along until they're they're in some transition, as I think some people know. Um, they're looking for a new editor in chief, and they haven't named that person yet. Um, so, in the interim, um, I figured this might be a fun way to keep myself busy. What do you see as the biggest opportunity with that title, Women's Running, which is a very strong brand name and clearly speaks to what the content is going to be about? Right. Yes. I, I do enjoy a focused audience. So, um, But I think even within Women's Running, there's so many different aspects of it. And what I would really love to be able to do is sort of bridge that gap between um, pro athletes and um, people who run for fitness or other, you know, for other reasons um, and sort of uh, be able to introduce pro running to maybe an audience that doesn't read about it currently or um, doesn't have any appreciation for it at this point. Um, and just sort of, like I said, bridge that gap. Why do you think that gap exists? Gosh, that's a big question. <laughs> I think there's a lot of reasons that that, that gap exists. Um 
I think the sport doesn't do a very good job of marketing itself to anybody. Um, and I, I think it's kind of a shame that so this, you know, running is such a popular activity and such a ready-made audience. So you would imagine, you know, if you play tennis, you know who Serena Williams is. If you run, you don't necessarily know who Shalane Flanagan is. And um, I think, you know, women's running could play a good part in in trying to, you know, introduce both audiences to each other. I think, you know, a lot of pro runners don't pay attention to what's happening behind them either. So it goes both ways. Looking at it from one angle, what have you seen as some of the biggest takeaways that the average runner can have from the pro side of the sport? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of good takeaways. I think running is running no matter how fast you do it. And I think we all run into some of the same issues along the way. Like today, um, Meg Boulay and I went out for a little jog um, three miles. And we were just talking about, you know, time management. Like, how do you fit your run into the day when you have, you know, she's a mom. She's a full-time, she works full-time at Goo. She's an extraordinary ultra runner. Um, you know, how does she do it? And I think we can all relate to not feeling like we have enough minutes in the day to get a run in. Um, you know, there's so many that like we all run into the same elements out there. Like what's stopping you from getting out the door because, well, it's pouring rain. Like I don't want to do it. Well, I bet Magda didn't really want to do it either when it was pouring rain this morning. So how does she get herself out the door? Um, I think we can all learn from each other. I think there's a lot of, you know, like I said, running is running and we can, we all run into the same challenges. On the flip side, the professional and elite side of the sport, it's small and it's very insular. And I would argue that a lot of professional athletes don't really know what's going on behind them or understand who that runner is and what it is that they're dealing with on a daily basis. Why is it important for those folks to connect with the middle and the back of the Packers? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I would say, you know, well, one of the obvious reasons for them is, you know, where's your where's your fan base coming from? How are you going to sustain yourself um, as, you know, a pro athlete if you don't have a fan base? <laughs> um, and I think a lot of pros just sort of miss out on that opportunity. I think more of them are doing a better job of it. Um, you know, in the past several years, you see like, you know, uh, a recent example would be like Colleen Quigley, like bonding with her fans just over something simple like French braids. <laughs> like she had 150 girls come out to New York the day before she won a national championship braiding hair. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot that can, you know, if you find your thing, you can really reach a lot of people. And I think that's good for not only individuals as pro athletes, but it's good for the sport too. Yeah. And on the sporting side of things, women's running, especially in this country and globally has experienced some what of a resurgence in recent years as far as performances go and just the spotlight that's being shown on these women. And we've certainly seen it here in the U.S. with Chilean winning New York and Desi winning Boston. And, you know, we could go on and on and on. For you, as someone who's reported on that, what do you see as the biggest drivers behind this recent resurgence that we're seeing? Uh, I think... When you look at the people who are um, achieving really great things right now, um, some of the things that they have in common, like 
Des and Shalene, especially, they've been at this for so long now. Um, and I just think like, if you're, if you have that longevity, you're gonna, you know, and you have the experience behind you, um, and you learn so much along the way, um, you know, if you stay at it long enough, <laughs> um, I think that's part of it. Um, I also think uh, training groups like the Bowerman Track Club obviously is the all-star example right now. Um, being able to support each other and learn from each other and mentoring opp- opportunities. Um, and also, I think, Shalane, having a big hand in in that and the leadership of that group and being a resource to those women is invaluable. And it's something that hasn't happened a lot until now. And I think other groups are learning from what they're doing and replicating it in their own individual ways. Um, So I think, you know, success begets success a lot. And um, once once it starts, um, I think it's more likely to continue. Let's dig into your story a little bit. When did you first start running? Oh, um, I first started running in middle school in cross country. Um, I was a swimmer growing up. Um, but during the off season, there was like this one little like slice of the year that didn't really have, um, you know, swim practice. It, it was a few weeks in the fall. Um, and, you know, my parents and coaches, they implored us to do something else um, during that time. And so I'm not coordinated. <laughs> I don't like sports with that involve any ball that I have to catch. No hand-eye um, coordination. No hand-eye yeah. coordination. Um, so I picked cross country, I think mostly because my older brother had already kind of like, you know, made his way into cross country. So that's when I tried it and I was super slow. Um, I was the slowest girl on the team, and but I really loved it. I loved the social aspect of it. I was really lucky to have great supportive coaches who didn't really care how fast you were running and made it super fun. And that's how I got started. Did you run in college? Not. <laughs> no. Not for a team and not even for yourself for health or fitness or anything I like mean, that? I mean, you know, I like to go out every now and then um, on a run and I would go through spurts of like being consistent about it, but never like sustained. I never ran a race or anything like that. Um, but I would go out and jog around campus, but yeah, nothing consistent. When did you take an interest in the sport? Um, I think it was when, so after I graduated, I moved to New York. Um, and I think that's really, so that's when I started running more consistently. Um, I did, my very first road race was the Gridiron Classic in Central Park. <laughs> um, and it just I, happened a few weeks ago. It still exists. I, I had know. runners doing it for Oh my miles. gosh, when I hear that like, <laughs> that like, or I see on Twitter or something, but that race is going on. I just warm fuzzies. Cause I was like, that's really what drew me in. Um, my friend, Sarah Lorge Butler, who, um, is a, also a freelancer who covers running. Um, she, she and I were working at a business magazine together, um, in New York. And she, when you started there, you were paired up with a mentor and she was my mentor. Um, and one day she saw running shoes underneath my desk and she's like, do you run? And, and she was a runner and she worked at New York Roadrunners, um, prior to that. And I said, I'm not a runner. I was like, I just go on the treadmill like three miles a day or whatever. And she's like, oh, well, you know, a bunch of my friends and I are doing this race, the Gridiron Classic, you should come with us. And like, from there, like really 
my whole career and like my love of running is like Sarah's doing because she really like got me into it gradually like, oh, there's a 10K. Oh, there's a half marathon. And all of a sudden she's like, you should sign up for the New York City Marathon. And so I did. And yeah. Snowballed from there. Yeah. We're going to get into your relationship with Sarah here in a little bit because you guys have worked on pieces together as recently as a year ago, I think was the last one that I saw. But I want to pull something out of that. I think I mentioned this to you last night when I saw you. One of my biggest pet peeves is when people say, oh, I only do 5Ks, but I'm not a runner. So at the time, why did you feel that way? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's because I had never done a race. Um, I only ran on the treadmill. Like I didn't venture out um, at that point into Central Park. Like I had a gym membership and that was just sort of like my go-to exercise, you know. Um, It was exercise to me. I wasn't a runner. I was exercising. And I think a lot of people still have that mentality. Do you think it's an identity thing that in order to be a quote unquote runner, you have to compete in races or take it seriously or chase a personal best? I think so. I think, um, you know, and I, I think a lot of people come at running for so many different reasons. Um, and, you know, for me, it was at that point in my life, it was, like I said, it was exercise and I didn't have goals and I didn't, yeah, I think a lot of people relate to um, identifying themselves as a runner you know, because they have a certain time goal in mind or, you know, they want to, you know, they see people, oh, I want my age group or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it becomes a little intimidating. And so they don't call themselves runners. When did it flip for you? Um, I, let's say it was after the Gridiron Classic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, it was probably over that the course of that year. And I think probably, um, and Sarah would bribe me like, oh, a bunch of us are going out for breakfast afterwards. And that was like my motivation. And I didn't want to like totally make a fool out of myself. So I would actually run during the week, you know? Um, and yeah, I think probably after that, I did a 10K and you know, did the whole breakfast thing and had a group of friends that were runners. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm a runner now too. So fast forwarding to what you're doing now, do you see that as one of your biggest challenges at the helm of womensrunning.com is to reach those runners who don't think that they're runners? I think so. I think that's definitely a part of it. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, if people are out there running, whether it's like as part of something else that they do. You know, I think a lot of people go to fitness classes and then they run the next day. And so they think that because they're doing other things um, that maybe they're not runners, quote unquote. But um, yeah, I think there's a place to to find those people. Um, we'll see. <laughs> so when you started running, you weren't reporting on the sport. You said you're working in business, business magazine of Mm -hmm. some sort at the time. When did you start taking an interest in the athletes who were competing and winning races and showing up in the headlines and on magazine covers and all of that? Yeah, I think it was um, for a time I did some communications work for the New York Roadrunners Foundation. And it was during that time that the um, men's Olympic trials were held there, um, 2007 for the 2008 Olympics. Um, And I think that was a huge turning point for me, just being out there, like right in my backyard, being able to watch these men like compete for the 
Olympic team, that was that was definitely a turning point for me. Like, oh, you know, watching was like, you know, watching these like high caliber athletes, like so up close and, you know, um, and what they were going for too was just super eye-opening to me. Um, and really it stuck with me. And um, I remember just wanting to read all the stories that came out after that. I was like, oh, there are people that make a living as journalists covering this really cool thing. That's awesome. And that was a very electric time. I mean, that event itself, I was there and I remember running back and forth across the park Mm -hmm. because you could see the athletes multiple times per loop. And it was very New York. There were big crowds. And Mm -hmm. I remember big Brian Sell cutout heads that were going around. How do they know who this guy is? Like, I was so oblivious back then. Like, I remember the the Hansons people just being everywhere, and I didn't know who the Hansons were. And I just remember looking them up afterwards, like, who was, and he made the team, you know, yeah. Um, So, yeah, it was huge. And I think it was something about being part of New York City Marathon weekend, and obviously, New York Mm -hmm. Roadrunners do a bang up job with the elite side of the sport and promoting it and, and getting those stories up. But it was a very exciting time in running. And looking back now, I mean, that was 12, well, 11 plus years ago. Right. Like that, I felt like that event amongst many others sort of kickstarted a lot of things for interest in competitive running in this country. I mean, I was already hook, line and sinker at that point because I'd run in college and I was a few years out of school and I was eating all that stuff up. But I felt like that was the start of kind of a resurgence in interest in the sport and more people were picking up running times, which we'll talk about because I know you worked there for (laughs) quite a while. And it was just, yeah, I mean, looking back, how could you not be excited if you were around that? Right, yeah. I And I just remember like watching Ryan Hall, um, you know, on his last loop, I was like kind of toward the, I think he was probably on his last mile and a half the last time I saw him come around. Um and just being in awe, like, and he was so excited and he was kind of just... Um, he was just floating. He was responding to the crowd, yeah. too, and, um, yeah, just thinking, wow, this is really cool. I don't want to get too far ahead just yet, but let's go back to the start of your writing career. When did you realize that writing was something that you enjoyed doing? Um, it was really early on in my life. Um, it was probably, like, elementary school, and... Um, I would, you know, big holidays at our house. Um, I remember one Thanksgiving going around, uh, well, you know, my mom's in the kitchen cooking dinner and my grandparents are there and we had some cousins there and I went around and I asked everybody what they were grateful for, <laughs> what, what they were thankful for. And I wrote, wrote it up like a, you know, like a journalist would. <laughs> and so I, it was obviously very early on. And I would just remember, um, just like creative writing classes in school, it was very obvious what I was excelling in and what I wasn't and what I enjoyed. And I'm one of those people, like, if I'm bored by something or I don't necessarily enjoy it, I don't give it a lot of time or attention. And so I think, yeah, like I said, it was very early on. Where does your curiosity come from? Oh, gosh. I I think I had parents that always encouraged me to be curious about everything. Um, and so... Yeah, I kind of have always been like that, just asking questions and wanting to know more. And I think, yeah, I think we can blame my parents for that. (laughs) (laughs) And as you were going through school, did you know that when you got to college or even beyond that you wanted to be a writer of some sort or a reporter? What was your mindset like at that time as a teenager, say? 
Yeah. When I was looking at colleges, um, I was specifically looking at journalism programs. So um, I wanted to end up, you know, back then, <laughs> the this is going to age me, but um, yeah, back then the dream was like getting to a newspaper and, you know, and that's what I did right after college was newspaper reporting. Um, so it all worked out and I worked, you know, I worked at the college paper um, the entire time I was there, loved it. Um, so yeah, I was one of those really lucky people that just like knew what they wanted to do and didn't change course at all. What were your interests right out of college in terms of reporting and the type of work that you wanted to be doing? Well, I really had dreams of being like a political reporter uh, in D.C. Um, so I actually did intern at uh, U.S. News and World Report, which was actually, again, <laughs> going to age myself, but um, it, you know, back then it was Time, Newsweek, and U.S. News and World Report were the big three magazines that everybody got every week and actually, you know, opened and read. And um, yeah, so I worked, uh, I did a summer internship at U.S. News and World Report and actually got some really great experience. It wasn't one of those like fetch us coffee kind of internships. It was like you're going to the Hill and covering this press conference or, you know, I got to go to the Supreme Court um, when they handed down the VMI decision, um, which was really cool. Um, but, you know, although it was a great internship and I learned a lot and I got a lot of experience, I quickly realized that, you know, maybe political reporting wasn't for me. Um, it was also the summer of the Atlanta Olympics. Um, and so I got to do a little, they gave me this great assignment, like the unsung, unsung sports of the Olympics. And like, you know, before, you know, it was before you could just like Google that, you know? Um, so I had to like actually like dig around and figure out what the sports were that like people don't know about and they don't watch and why and what they're all about. So um, I gravitated toward that and I was like, this is more fun. <laughs> Real reporting. Yeah. <laughs> How has reporting changed over the last, say, one to two decades? Oh, gosh. Uh, so much. I think, um, well, obviously, it's so much easier now because um, you can Google a lot. You can do a lot of research, like, without leaving your bed if you don't want to. It's also dangerous, <laughs> It's though. also dangerous. And I think it's also um, breeds a lot of laziness, um, you know, you, I remember my first job out of college, um, I was doing like city hall and police and cops. And, you know, it wasn't like sending a text to a source. It was like twice a day you go to city hall and you go to the police, you know, and check the reports and knock on doors and talk to people. And that's what you did every day. Um, you didn't text anyone. You texting didn't exist. Um, and if that wasn't an option, you actually picked up the phone and called them. And um, there was, you know, we didn't do email that much then. Um, so yeah, it's changed tremendously. Yeah, you had to really work for it. Whereas yes. now you can, as you said, stay in your pajamas <laughs> in bed and gather enough information to put out a story. It might not be a good story. It might not be an accurate story. It might not be story, the best one, but yeah. But it gets out there. And, and certainly there's plenty of it out there that relies on that. Yeah, and I think just the, as reporting has changed, just the speed of the news cycle has changed yes. as well. Because back yeah. then you would get newspaper, some places, one, once in the morning, once in the evening, and then eventually just once a day, uh, or you'd watch something on the news, you weren't getting alerts to your phone or 
Twitter right. changing every 15 seconds. And it's it's pretty wild to think back that yes. not that long ago, no. uh, it was a very different set of circumstances yeah. than it is now. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, and I try to remember, you know, as easy as it is to like shoot off a text to somebody you're trying to get in touch with that, um, or, you know, send an email that that doesn't yield the best story and it doesn't yield, um, you know, I think a lot of times it's um, in the interest of speed. Sometimes we rely on that a little too much. Um, But if I interview somebody by phone, for instance, it's going to be a better story than if somebody's answering questions via email where they can sit down and really think about what they want to say. And um, and. To be honest, a lot of times you don't know if that person is actually the one answering those questions. Right. Hey, bear with me while we take a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It is Rise Run Retreat. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat. It takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont and was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. Nestled in the Green Mountains, the picturesque village of Woodstock serves as the backdrop to all of Rise Run Retreat's activities. You'll explore country roads, run through gentle wooded trails, listen to inspiring guest speakers, and participate in numerous workshops. Joining host Sarah Canny at Rise Run Retreat this spring is Sally McRae, professional ultra runner, coach, and all-around inspiration to many. Quick side note, I happen to coach Sally, and let me tell you, she's got amazing energy, an incredible story, and you will just love spending time with her for four days in Vermont. In addition to all that, guests will hear from Kristen Shunis, who's a confidence coach to female athletes at the collegiate, professional, and Olympic level. You'll also have the chance to work with injury prevention specialist and running coach Kim Nato. Guests will take part in group runs, restorative yoga and cross-training sessions, and you'll also have the chance to chat by the fire pit, soak in the jacuzzi, or find a quiet spot to relax. Sounds pretty amazing to me. Limited to just 16 women. Sorry, guys, the small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience. Registration for the retreat includes all lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. With only a few spots still available, registration is sure to fill up before the April 7th deadline. So head to riserunretreat.com and use the code TMSPOD, that's all capital letters, and save 100 bucks off of your registration fee. My thanks to Rise Run Retreat for supporting the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. When did you move from D.C. to New York? Um, So I actually, so right out of school, I was at a small paper in eastern Pennsylvania um, and did the police and cops and all that. Um, Then I moved to New York um, and did the business magazine thing, um, which was great. And I was there for about six years. And then I moved to D.C. to, um, I worked at the Chronicle of Higher Education and covered sort of the business aspect of higher ed. So like philanthropy and endowment management and stuff like that. Um, And then I took a leap of faith and uh, went freelance after about five years at the Chronicle um, and packed up a U-Haul and just ended up in Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay, so I got my <laughs> I have my geography wrong. For some reason, I thought you went D.C., New York. Well, I was D.C. for the internship. <laughs> got it. Um, okay. During college and then, yeah. Got it. Okay, that makes, that makes more sense now. And then in 2007, you were at the Olympic trials yes. and are inspired by it. What was your first pitch to a running publication? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, what was my first ness? I'm not going to remember what it was. I know I wrote 
something really small and short for runner's world, like the print. I mean, I don't even think they had like digital then, <laughs> um, but I'm not going to remember what it was. I don't remember. That's terrible. When did you get on staff at Running Times? Okay, so I ended up in Flagstaff and Sarah Lorge Butler had ended up at Running Times as I think she was a senior editor at that point. Um, and not two months into my Flagstaff adventure, she said, hey, we, you know, and it was great because she knew I was freelancing. So she'd given me a couple of assignments. Um, and she said, oh, I think we're hiring another senior editor. Are you interested? And I was like, I'm not moving back to Pennsylvania, you know, like I just got here. Um, she said, well, what if you could do it remotely? Like you wouldn't have to move back. And I said, yeah, I'd definitely be interested. So I applied and um, it was really funny. I found out I got the job while I was at Trans Rockies, uh, running my first Trans Rockies. So that was exciting. I was like, oh, <laughs> this is a great week. I'm actually like completing something that terrified me and I got a new job. You have a thing for traveling while getting new jobs in the r- running industry. Maybe that's why I travel so much. <laughs> <laughs> Just to give yourself more opportunity. Yeah. Uh, what was the appeal of Flagstaff? Had you been there before you had moved there? So um, what happened was I had left the Chronicle and um, I was being coached by Mike Smith, um, who... Central Massachusetts yeah. is his hometown. He's yeah. from Princeton and ran at Wachusett Regional. I only know that because I was running at the same time. That's so funny. Great guy. Yeah. So uh, he was out in Flagstaff. Um, he was training for the Olympic trials. Um, and I was at a point in my running where I was really, I was just off qualifying for Boston. And that was a big goal for me at the time. Um, and... Michelle Losala was being coached by somebody at the Run Smart Project. And she said, oh, you should get a coach. Like, you're seconds away. Like, just have somebody coach you through Boston um, or through your Boston qualifier. And I was like, oh, that's a good idea. So I actually called Michelle's coach, Finch Sherry, and he said, oh, I don't have time to coach anybody else, but I have this friend who wants to get into coaching. Can I give them your contact information? And that was Mike. And um One thing led to another, and Mike uh, ended up coaching me, and they had put on this, like, Run Smart Project retreat in Flagstaff, and he was like, oh, you should come out for this, and so I did, and it was at that point where I was like, oh, I don't have to live on the East Coast anymore. I'm freelancing, and I could try something completely new, so... This place um, is pretty sweet. This seems nice. I thought I was going to end up somewhere in Colorado, but um, somehow I got brainwashed during that week. And uh, yeah, I basically went back home and I packed everything up and I um, and I was like, I'll sign a six-month lease and see if I like it. And I did. Um, obviously, that was nine years ago now. <laughs> so yeah. At this point, Flagstaff is home permanently for you. I think so. Yeah. I've been there, yeah, like I said, nine years and um, I don't have any plans to leave. So so you were one of Mike Smith's first athletes, and now yes. Mike Smith is one of the top collegiate coaches in the <laughs> entire country at Northern Arizona <laughs> University, and it is all because of Aaron Strout. You yes. heard it here. Yeah, first. I was his guinea pig. Yeah, it's funny. Um, he he said not too long ago, like, 
you know, looking back on some of the things he had me do, he's like, I would never have somebody do that now. (laughs) So yeah, there was a lot of experimentation going on back then. When you um, joined the staff of Running Times, that was your first real big foray into the running media world. What were your impressions of it when you first got started? Well, I think um, it was kind of a mixture of... uh, I was really excited to do a lot of of good things there, and I think we did. Um, I think a lot of times what happens um, with running media is that, um, you know, I was coming from a purely journalism background, and a lot of people end up uh, covering the sport of running who don't come from that background. And I think that took a lot of adjustment for me to realize that, like, you don't, you know, like you don't see a lot of stories out there that are deeply reported. Um, and I don't know if that's just a product of maybe the speed of which things have to be done now. Um, or if it's because there's, you know, there are a lot of people that come at it, um, without having, you know, work the cops beat or the city hall beat or that like real basic journalism. Do you think some of it is the sport just not being taken seriously as a professional sport? Because if we look at the big ball sports and even some of the bigger Olympic sports, they have beat writers who are covering teams, who are covering, like that's their full-time job. And I mean, I've spent quite a few years in the running media world now too. And when I was first getting into it, in 2008, 2009, so right around Mm -hmm. that same time, the number of positions that were available were very, very few. Uh, And they are now even fewer. Now fewer, yes. Um, (laughs) And it's just a hard way to make a living. And you can try to do it as a freelancer, but I'll tell those of you out there who are listening to this, (laughs) you got to write a lot of stories to try and make it as a freelancer in the running media world. You really do. Um, Yeah, and it's like you said, it's only gotten harder since we've gotten into it. Um, The opportunities are much smaller. Um, You know, yeah, I I think um, the sport is just kind of broken in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, when that happens, it's, um, I mean, it's flourishing in some ways and kind of broken in other ways. And uh, which makes it, you know, why would a major outlet like, the Washington Post need a beat reporter on running. They don't. Um, not enough people are reading about it. So, What are some of the biggest ways that running is broken? Gosh, I think um, right now, if you look at USATF, it's a disaster. Um, and I don't think anybody can claim otherwise. <laughs> I think uh, the leadership is just broken. And um, there's a severe lack of transparency there. Um, and if they're supposed to be governing and leading the sport, then we should all be alarmed. Do you think running as a sport needs to become more widespread and gain traction with the general population? Or is it okay if it stays as a very niche thing with a very core dedicated audience? Oh, gosh. I go back and forth on that a lot. Um, And I think, like, anytime you're covering something that you also love, like, you want more people to love it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, and some days I wake up and I'm like, well, maybe it's okay that, like, we're, like, a geeky, weird um, niche sport. Um, Maybe that's just, maybe we should focus on that and make it better. Um, You know, I, I always 
think that maybe um, you start smaller and and get what we're supposed to be doing right um, and you know hone in on it and make it better and then maybe look about look at expanding it. Okay, and going back to you and getting into reporting on running, what were some of the things that you took from reporting on crime and politics and business that have benefited you the most as you've transitioned to almost exclusively just covering the sport of running? Um, I think a lot um, comes into play, you know, depending on what the circumstances are. Like when you're looking at, you know, maybe I want to write a story about USATF. Well, I've written about local government, which is, (laughs) you know, um, or I've written about higher education and a lot of, you know, politics come into play there too. Um, So I think, you know, if you can learn how to ask those hard questions of people in power, that's always going to be helpful um, and not be afraid of that. Um, And I think, you know, working at a newspaper, you get really accustomed to being having to do that every day. Um, I think one of the big things was um, at the Boston bombings when we were all there covering what we we were there to cover a sport and a race and that quickly turned into a cop story. You know, it was a crime and it was, um, you know, that I instantly my brain turned toward, you know, what I'd learned many years ago covering crime because that's what it was. How important are relationships in this industry. You mentioned your friendship with Sarah Lorge Butler, who you met um, while you were both working at a business magazine, and she had done some stuff for New York Roadrunners and then eventually running Times and helped you to get on board there. And now as an editor yourself, you're working with tons of freelance writers. You've worked with them in varying capacities throughout the year. How important are those relationships to having success in this media world that we live in? Oh, I think it's huge. Um, You know, like I said, I owe so much to Sarah. Um, She's the one who's given me so many different opportunities and supported, you know, my writing through her editing. And, um, you know, I I think if I can do that for somebody else and that person does it for somebody else, you know, that's, that's great for not only the sport, but it's, you know, it's great for journalism in the, you know, it only improves things. And so I think relationships in this little industry that we're in are, are huge. As an editor now who's going to be assigning stories, what advice would you give for young writers who want to break into this industry? Um, stop pitching personal essays. Like, honestly. <laughs> Save it for your Instagram account? Yeah, that's what Instagram and blogs are for. What I would really love to do is, uh, or really love to see in my email are more pitches about um, uh, reported stories and how they're going to go about doing it and who they're going to talk to and why this is important to the audience. It's like real journalism. Real journalism, yeah. I mean, personal essays are great and they have their place for sure, but I don't think, I think one of the missteps for some reason in recent years has been 
you know, everything's got to be a personal essay or a first person, and I don't buy it. Why do you think we're seeing more of those popping up? Is it because there are just more platforms to put that stuff out? I mean, there's Instagram, there's Facebook, there's Twitter, there's Medium, there's like all these places that you can put your personal essay and maybe people want to just get them in bigger publications so they can reach more people. I'd love to get your take on that because I'm a little baffled by it. I'm baffled too, but then when you look at like, you know, people wake up and post pictures of themselves on Instagram. It's like a look at me culture mm-hmm. um, that we're living in. And, you know, that kind of bleeds into other things too. What are some of the most memorable stories that you've worked on in your time as a running journalist? Um, there have been so many. I think uh, one thing that always pops up in my head is the one that Sarah and I did together about um, Des's Boston win. I love that. That was like one of my most favorite things um, that we did. And that idea actually came from Marissa Stevenson, who was an editor at the time at Runner's World. Um, you know, when you're, you, you can relate to this, when you're in the aftermath of Boston and American one, and you're kind of, you know overwhelmed and not thinking about like, well, what do we do tomorrow? Um, And Marissa came up with that idea um, and Sarah and I kind of like took the ball and ran with it. And um, yeah, just talking to so many different people who were seeing Des's race from so many different perspectives. um, I, I just love that piece. I'll link to that in the show notes so everyone can check it out. How cool is it for you to work on that piece with Sarah? It was great. I mean, there's so so few opportunities for us to actually like both report a story. Usually it's like I'm writing or she's writing and one of us is editing. Um, so to both be reporting it and then putting it together, oh my gosh, because we talked to so many people. We had so much great material, but like, you know, you have to cut it down and make it readable and just the whole process. It was really fun. Any others jump out to you maybe from early on in your career? Um, I think, so my very first feature for Running Times was on Meb, um, and it was before he had won Boston, and he was training for New York, which got canceled that year. Um, so ultimately, the we were literally going to press, like had to pull the story back to fix it because in New York, while we were there, it, New York got canceled. So, um, and he had also announced like that day that he was uh, moving to San Diego. So um, a lot of things had changed <laughs> since I had um, first written the story, but it was the first time that I had gone to visit a pro athlete anywhere. So I went to Mammoth um, and it was really, it was funny. It was, uh, I had no idea what to expect. And now I know, you know, years later, now I know, bring your running clothes, expect to run with these people. And that's where a lot of your great material is going to come from. Like, I remember showing up to his tempo run that day. And of course he was doing like a little warm up. Um, and I was just in awe because it's Meb and I had never met him before. I'd never interviewed a pro athlete before. Um, and he was like, you know, I was in running clothes cause I was going to do a run later. And he was like, come on. And so I was like, uh, I guess this is the gig. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, um, He's like, what are you training for? And I was like, at the time I was training for Houston. And uh, he was like, well, do my warm up with me. And, you know, Bob Larson's out there. And he's so funny. He was like reading off splits, like during the warm up. He was like, Aaron, you just did a 730 mile. I was like, thanks, Bob. <laughs> but yeah, I think that was one of my most memorable ones because I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, and then I ended up writing 
that cover story. Um, and we all know what Mib did from there. So, Well, it's one of the cool things about our sport, too, is the athletes are accessible on right. that level. You can't go and do a workout with Dwayne Wade right. at his practice facility. Exactly. Um, you're not going to get that kind of exclusive access, number one. And yeah. number two, it's like he's just on such a program that he doesn't want those types of distractions. Right. right. You've covered a lot of athletes that was your first one reporting mm-hmm. for a feature story. What have been some of the biggest lessons you've learned from these athletes or maybe things that have surprised you in all your years of reporting on them? Ooh, that's a really great question. I think with Meb, um, a lot of things stuck with me with him uh, just because we're about the same age. And so um, we talked a lot at that time, just like how training has to change as you get older and it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just knowing, you know, how you need to change it to, you know, sustain your running. Um, so I would say from him, I just kind of learned to accept changes, um, and, uh, not to sort of dread them. Um, I'd say with, um, so I have a really, I feel like a special relationship with Shalane as well. And the first time I ever met her too, um, went on a little warm up before a fartlek run on Lake Mary Road. Um, that was the first time we ever like really talked to each other. It's the first time I had met her in person. Um, so I think um, it was really interesting because I was at that time, it was before she ran Boston the first time. So it was probably gosh, 2013 mm-hmm. maybe. Um and I was a little intimidated by her before I met her because she had such a like hardcore. She has an edge to her. She has an edge, and I, and especially back then, because um, people didn't know her quite as well back then. Just um, like I, I think I ended up in the story about her game face, you know. Um, and I remember like saying hello, and she's like, "Okay, well, let's go on my warm up." And I, so I was like, you know, running next to her. And it was like all of a sudden, like just like two people who were just out on a run talking to each other. Like, you know, we were laughing about like mutual friends and like it when it was just like running with one of my, you know, running friends. Um, And so I think that kind of ties back to what we were first talking about. It's like these people aren't that much different than we are when it comes to running. I mean, we were just out on a little jog, you know, catching up on people we knew in common and, um, yeah. And I immediately recognized that like, she's not somebody to be intimidated by. She's just a runner like I am. (laughs) I think it was probably about a year ago now that you had another feature on her for Mm -hmm. runner's world. And I think it was leading up to last year's Boston marathon and just, you could tell, at least I could tell as an experienced reader and having read a lot of your work and having, knowing Shalane myself that, you were able to get stuff out of her that no one else could have. And it is because of the depth of that relationship Mm -hmm. and that level of comfort that she has with you. And I'll link to that in the show notes as well, but I think it was one of the best feature stories I've ever read on her. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I think um, over the years I've worked pretty hard to, you know, gain the trust of a lot of people who are in the sport and, um, you know, that doesn't happen overnight. Um, it takes years of, 
you know, hopefully writing some quality things um, that are honest and accurate and even if a race doesn't go well um, and maybe somebody doesn't particularly like what you've written, um, but if it's accurate and they know that you're always going to... Tell the truth. Tell the truth that um, I think, you know, then you, you're you rewarded with that kind of access and that kind of trust. Yeah. Quality journalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, another piece that you wrote within the last year that really stuck with me is one you did for Outside on women's coaches and how there is a lack of them, right. um, for lack of a better term. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and that really hit home to me as a coach myself and it forced me to step back and be like, damn, like there really aren't a lot of female coaches out here at the collegiate level and at the professional level. And we're starting to see not because of, of that piece, but now Shalane, to use one example is coaching with Bowerman track club as she winds down her career. We're seeing more and more women getting opportunities at the collegiate level. Um, you know, I know at University of Washington, you've got the Powells who mm-hmm. are coaching there. Right. And Andy's not the head coach right. anymore. It's Monica, um, which is great. It's good to see women getting elevated to those types of positions. Let's dig into that piece a little bit. Mm-hmm. Why have women struggled to coach and get the same opportunities as men whether it's at the collegiate level and I'm more interested in at the professional level? Um, I think it's correlated uh, probably, but um, I think, you know, at the NCAA level, especially, you know, the the higher profile, the program, the more demanding. I mean, those coaches, gosh, there's three different seasons that they're contending with. It's never ending. It's never ending. And then you got recruiting on top of that. I mean... There is no work-life balance. And um, if you happen to be married and have a family, um, you know, it's really hard. And you have to be with a person who understands that and supports it. And, you know, it's—I I can't imagine. I think the lifestyle is, you know, borderline ridiculous sometimes. Um, you're And the 24-7 access that you're— athletes tend to have with you because you're a text away when anything and everything is an issue. (laughs) Um, So I think it's hard. And I think um, a lot of women, they're qualified, but they're also hesitant to make those sacrifices. Um, And understandably so. I mean, um, the women that are succeeding right now are really redefining the roles and they they should be redefined. Um, So I think we're seeing more stepping in and I think um, they're also bettering the the profession, um, to be honest with you. And um, I think the other problem is that um, there are so many men who are making those hiring decisions and um, it's, you know, it's a club. I mean they're more likely to hire somebody that they ran with in, you know, high school or they've coached with before somewhere else. And it's like this never-ending cycle of, you know, men hiring men. 
because that's what they're comfortable with. What was the feedback like from that piece? Um, it was mostly positive, actually. Um, you know, you have some people that disagree with, you know, some of the premise of it. But um, I think overwhelmingly, I've heard, please write more of that. Um, please cover more of that. And, you know, that was the tip of the iceberg. And it was a great story that I enjoyed working on. But I think um, it could even be expanded. Yeah. Is that something in your current role as digital editor of women's running that you would like to do more of and hope to do more of? For sure. I think, um, you know, I've talked it over with uh, some of the the folks at Pocket Outdoor Media, which owns women's running. And um, yeah, I think we're not going to shy away from, you know, those kinds of issues and, you know, gender equity issues and those kinds of things. A couple more things before we wrap up here. How have you... Let's say dealt with criticism or feedback of your work throughout your career, especially now that it's so easy to yeah, provide so it. Yeah, so easy to provide it. Uh, yeah, back back in the beginning, it wasn't so easy. Um, you'd actually have to sit down and write a letter and mail it. So um, it took some effort to be critical. Uh, I actually welcome feedback and, and criticism because I think it, it makes it better. It makes me better. It makes me think about more things than maybe I was thinking about at the time um, I was writing something. Um, I think it's all in, you know, how it's given to you. Um, is it given to you as um, a polite, you know, hey, you didn't think about this, or I didn't agree with the way you said this, or whatever the case may be, or is it like accusatory, you know, it's... it. Where is it coming from? Like, mm. you know, is it coming from a place of um, a good place or is it coming from, you know, I want to attack you because I don't think you know what you're talking about. Yeah, you got to evaluate the source. Right. <laughs> Last question. What is exciting you in running right now, whether it's your own running, the sport, or the culture of it in general? Um, I think... You know, because now I'm focusing on women's running um, exclusively, although I feel like I've been doing that for a couple of years now. Um, I think a lot of the pro women are doing a much better job of um, relating to more people who run. Um, I think they're trying harder to reach more people, um, and that's only going to elevate what they're doing. And, and it's also going to inspire more people. And the bottom line is, you know, a lot of people look at running and they want to try it, um, but they're intimidated by it. And I think the more encouraging and um, welcoming we are, um, starting from the top of the sport, uh, the better it is. And so that's exciting for, for me to watch and to cover. And um, I hope they continue. I think that's a great place to wrap things up. I'm a big fan of your work, have been for a long time. It was great to sit down and chat with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap on this week's show. Hope you enjoyed this most recent episode of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. I'd love your feedback. You can send it to me on Twitter. I'm at Mario Fraioli, or you can go to your podcast app that you're listening to this on and leave a rating and a review. That helps new listeners to discover the show. Only takes a minute, and it is the easiest way to show your support. 
My thanks to Rise Run Retreat for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Rise Run Retreat is a four-day women's running retreat that takes place from May 16th to the 19th in Vermont and was founded on the idea that when women come together through running, they inspire and strengthen one another. On the retreat, you'll explore country roads, run through gentle wooded trails, listen to inspiring guest speakers, and participate in numerous workshops. The retreat is limited to just 16 women. The small-scale setting makes for a unique and impactful experience, and your registration fee includes all your lodging, wholesome meals provided by the local farmer's market, and an amazing swag bag. The deadline to sign up is April 7th, and it will fill up fast, so head to riserunretreat.com for more information and use the code TMSPOD, that's all capital letters, and save 100 bucks off of your registration fee. Let's see, what else? If you're digging the podcast, you can sign up for my newsletter. It's also called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe for my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I think you'll also enjoy. And finally, big thank you to John Summerford of BearsRecords.com for handling all the audio production of this show. He also created the music himself, which is pretty rad. John is a big part of my small team and helps make the morning shakeout sound as good as it does week in and week out. I think that's it. Until next time, I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. <laughs>